Welcome back to Psychiatry XR, where we aim to inspire worldwide conversations around the use of extended reality in psychiatric care. I'm your host for this episode, Kim Bullock, and I'm joined by my co-host, Faiza Arshad and Jessica Hagen. We are so happy to have Amelia Goldenhirsch. Emilio is a CEO and co-founder of MindCo Health. He's a TEDx speaker, organizational psychologist, researcher, and entrepreneur with training in mind-body medicine using systemic and ecological epistemology. His experience is aimed at developing long-term behavior changes through the combined use of new technologies in fields of health, education, and organization. He is currently developing digital therapies using virtual reality, mindfulness, and human support, bringing accessibility to health through innovative and evidence-based methodologies. Welcome, Amelia. You really represent a highly creative, academic, and entrepreneur in the XR behavioral space, and your experience as a psychologist bringing an idea to market is so valuable. We've been dialoguing a lot for many years now, and mostly with your product targeting nicotine use disorder, and I thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. Thank you so much, Kim, Jessica, and Faisa for the invitation. I'm very glad to be here. I'm thrilled to have a beautiful conversation. Great. I was wondering if maybe you could just kind of begin with how your career ended up in the XR and mental and behavioral health space. Absolutely. I would say that it was a thing of faith and also of lack at the same time. I always liked technology. I really studied also movies and TV for a while. And I always loved to write, screenwriting and the like. But then I lost my father to mental health and addictions, and that turned my life upside down. And that made me get into psychology. So for the past 15 years, I kind of dedicated myself to help others. I realized the self-awareness or power, or how do you like to say it? And a couple of years ago, I met with my two co-founders from kindergarten, Christian and Nicolas. Each one of them was also working in the field of either medical devices or virtual reality. We all got together and we decided to jump into this industry, which is mental health and virtual reality to create accessible self-empowerment tools for people so they can actually have them at their house directly access either through their phone or through a device Mm. and start working and training on themselves. Uh, Myself, I really love, as I was telling you, to write. So I pour a lot of these scripts that you hear or you see or you experience in the virtual worlds. And that's something that really kind of completes me in a way. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. It takes all your experiences together. And it sounds like you just kind of followed, but really you were curious and interested about, but also that you turn great suffering into something. Yeah. Yeah. It can be so powerful. Yeah. And I didn't know that about you, about your father. I, I too, my father is still alive and has substance use disorder and ended up with Korsakoff's an amnestic disorder at a very young age because of it. So, yeah, in a way, I think that we all suffer a lot in the past three years due to COVID, but that's just a reminder. It accelerated the way we understood the need for mental health support and care. And I think that before that, it always existed, but right now it has expanded so much that there is like a huge 
huge global need at every part of the world. And virtual reality is one of those tools that has been born to get access to people that are not really close to either health insurance or anything like that. So a lot of things to work on. Yeah, and you were such a like early adopter. Your prototype was already ready to pivot into the virtual world for a pandemic. It seemed like accidentally, but you were kind of so forward thinking. I was so impressed that you had your prototype so early on. I think we met in 2016 and you already had it all packaged together yeah. and ready to demo and ready to disseminate. I think we were very early for the market and I know that COVID again was a very difficult thing, but for the good and for the bad, it brought us acceptability and adoption to a different level. Today, all people know what telemedicine is. All people know that they can access through some digital tool, through technology. And virtual reality has been just growing, growing, growing and expanding. And now with all these meta and new devices and, and upcoming present future, as I like to say, this is the time, right? Like the market for VR, for mobile health, for wellness, for mental health has never been with such a demand. And we all know that, for example, depression is going to be the first cause of incidents, creating medical claims at the employer level and the insurance. So by 2030, it's projected. So we all know that there is a huge need. And when we started the company, we were early. Mm -hmm. But we took that advantage to actually run clinical trials, to understand early adopters, to understand how this can be used at all levels of society, not just, you know, the ones that are in clinical settings with a super nice device. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we have a lot of listeners and including myself who have a lot of ideas, kind of academic ideas. And you've been one of the few really successful academics that's been able to translate your ideas and become an entrepreneur as well. How would you suggest listeners who might want to take some idea they have in VR or XR to market? Like, are there plans or do you use a certain strategy in thinking this through or where does one even start? Well, it's a challenge for sure. There is no one easy ABC how to do it because in a way, a startup that works with virtual reality is different because the market is adopting the technology. So you have to be very focused, very, very evidence-based as well. A lot of things to take care before you launch something to the market. Mm -hmm. Because uh, one of the comparisons or things that I always think is that we all are used to see a lot of violence in TV. You know, you access Netflix and you go and you have these blood, blood, blood pictures. But then when you have to work on mental health with some exposure therapy, for example, or if you're working as a professional with VR, with some specific immersive situations, it's like there is a different care there that we have to, because we know that we can trigger emotional aspects, that if you don't have the correct context to support that, not everyone is ready for that, right? Which is not the same that just watching a picture, a movie. It may be similar, it may look like it's similar, but we are addressing the mind and the emotional self. So it's a very different thing. So for those that want to start some kind of venture with VR, XR, I would say that if you can create a prototype, that's where you can start. Uh, just start with a product that you believe it will have a resonation with the patient or with the client or with the person that is on need. 
and just go and work it out with that. Just put it there in front of those people so they can actually give you some feedback on that. But most importantly, once you know that there is some kind of need that you're solving with that, one of the biggest challenges is how to go to market. And it's not easy. It's not easy because, again, we have a lot of barriers that are present in the VR industry. Cost is one, right? Like education is another one. I've been working with people all over the US and Latin America and Europe, and nine out of 10 people never used VR before or even more. So that's a very difficult thing. You have to really be paying attention to the educational side of how to use a new technology. And then you have to consider if you want to provide it kind of self-manage or you want to have somebody to guide you through it. So there are a lot of aspects around the experience that you want to provide, not just the VR experience, but the experience of adopting a new technology that has to be taken into account. And then the client or the one who is going to be paying for this, that's another history. So there are a couple of levels here to address, but I would start from having a working prototype and having uh, understood what is the best experience for the end user to actually access that. Once you got that, then you just turn around and see who would be able to distribute that. So I, I would go through that side. Mm -hmm. Great advice. All right. I'll open it up to um, our other co-hosts to ask some questions. Thank you, Kim. Uh, Emilio, I want to go specifically into your technology with MindCo. MindCo is a mobile platform that utilizes Google Cardboard, correct? And it's really focused on interventions for outpatient solutions that helps treat behavioral health issues. What type of research has been performed on your offering and where has it been performed and what has it shown? Yeah, perfect. So we have been evolving Kim's mentioned at the beginning, we started out with one digital intervention for smoking cessation. Today, we extended for stress management as well. And next year, we're going to continue extending for tumor verticals. So we are creating a platform for wellness and mental health to be distributed as easily as possible with mobile access. Now, we have run what I believe it's, and I'm sure it's the first virtual reality smoking cessation program study at home with an end on 120 people. We run this in Argentina with just urban population across the country, uh, people that weren't educated or weren't selected by any kind of patient. So it was like literally population management style. And we published that paper with researchers from Johns Hopkins University, from Argentina, from Mindfulness Institutes, and so on in the Journal of Medical and Internal Research, which found to be 33% efficacy compared to the Ministry of Health booklet, for example, that they distribute, which usually 33 per, for smoking cessation, I would be three better uh, outcomes than the standard of care for nicotine patches or just uh, kind of a CBT counseling by phone. So we, we published that paper that was done on 2020. And since then we have, well, today we're running two clinical trials with Stanford. One is with the Research Prevention Center, the tobacco team, led by Jody Prochaska. The other one is with the pediatric department for vaping prevention and cessation for teenagers. We're running that under Minecraft. So that is the first time Minecraft has been used for good, in a sense, for teenagers. And both of them have IRB approval. So it's going to be published. We also have 
other ongoing trials with the UC Denver, Colorado, and expect to have two more with University of Miami and the city or University of New York as well for college students, for urban Latinx population, for cancer patients, for caregivers, different segments of the population getting into the same kind of modality of training. That's really interesting. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you're using Minecraft in the research? Yes, we are providing a platform for single players to get education through a game. So a teenager will access. We also are able to verify their age, location, and gender. So we can authenticate that they are themselves. And they go through the game, getting into, you know, some challenges and they have to complete some tasks. And according to that, they move forward and get more information and more information. And then we kind of ask, pre-post what's going on. This is the first step of a multi-step study as well and launching a program that can address uh, also one of the huge epidemics that there is in this country today, which is mental health for teenagers and adults. Wow. Yes, I love that you're really focusing on gathering the evidence before making claims, which is kind of unique for a lot of companies. How do you work with clinicians? Do you sponsor as an early startup? I would imagine it's hard to do any sponsored research and pay for the research. Do you just get clinicians excited about it and applying for their own grants? Or are they just kind of doing it in their free time? Or yeah. how, how are the studies funded? Yeah, we basically get together with the labs that are literally interested the thing is that, Kim, usually when you have a virtual reality intervention, could say, first, I would like to make the difference between having a virtual reality experience to having a virtual reality intervention. It's a completely different thing, right? We like having a cool time in VR for 10 minutes. It's an experience, could help many, many, many people, but it's not an intervention that is a behavioral health program built to create a long lasting change. So there is a huge difference about that. So when we actually provide an accessible and affordable for the patient tool that can be used as outpatient service or population management with evidence base and data already, most people get excited. And we have our team that can also write grants. We co-build the grant. We apply for it sometimes. Sometimes it's an internal grant from the university. Sometimes it's we ourselves sponsor it. It depends on the aim that we have. And I'm very open to, you know, after this podcast, if it reach to the audience that actually also want to run different studies, I'm very open to that. Just reach out to me later on. Yeah. And Emilio, I think something that's really interesting to me about your products are that you're targeting the teenager population. And I think, you know, vaping and smoking and things like that are becoming increasingly common in adolescence. I'm curious to know if there are any risks that come with using what you've put together. Have you seen any downsides to it that, you know, especially because this population is maybe more sensitive, the fact that you're using Minecraft, which is a video game. I'm just curious in general, like it seems like there's a lot of variables that are coming into play. And again, this is the adolescent population versus adults. Just curious if you've seen any risks or downsides. Yeah, we didn't see any kind of downside right now because also this is initial stages of what we are working on. But at the same time, there are a couple of risks that are associated with creating games to 
change behaviors, right? Like we all know there is a huge technology addiction in, in the population that is adolescents and teenagers. So there are pros and cons for all these gaming related programs that we are creating. We have to be very careful about it. We have to be very aware of what we are creating, the length of it, the depth of it, and how we can then always get to the end of the line to a human being. And that is something that we always take into consideration. Again, right now, these initial stages. So it's under a clinical trial. It's with a specific access and it's not for everyone right now. So once we move forward with it, we have more information about it. But we have seen already Roblox. When an FDA, Achille, the company Achille with Roblox, they partnered, they have an FDA approved program for teenagers. So we know that there is a way to get there. And we're also figuring out why we'll do it. Because again, this is an untapped problem, an untapped vehicle yet to be used for this. So we're pioneering as we were six years ago with the VR and mental health intervention. I think we're doing the same here. And I, I have more to, to add probably next year. And you're using the four-dimension approach. So you have a physical kit and then you have a mobile app, virtual training, and a human coach. Have you seen any problems with adherence to using this entire approach? And maybe can you elaborate on why you've used that framework? Yeah, of course. I start with why we use that framework and then I'll go into the numbers. One of the things that we have been working, and I think Kim, we spoke about this a couple of times as well, is that the theoretical framework that has been you know, used over the past 50 years, it's different from the available technology that we can also match today. So for example, CBT. CBT is amazing, but it's not enough. Right? If CBT would be enough, we would have not this problem, right? So different approaches are very unique in the way they work. We base our theoretical approaches in a science called cognitive ecology, which is the way in which we relate with the environment. An organism relates with the environment through the embodiment of their physical being embedded in the environment. And right now, we're working also on, on writing a piece on science about that because it's a very distinct way of thinking. You know, when you think about one problem as in one solution for that problem, it's not the same that if you think about a problem being a network of problems, so you need a network of solutions. And when we shift the mindset from individual elemental properties for an individual problem to a network of elements and a network of problems, that's where we are shifting our lives as well. So we are creating this from a different mindset, which is, again, based on cognitive ecology. And that's why we create these different layers of engagement, because some people don't like to, you know, journal in an app. And it's not natural, right? The natural thing is for us to write. So I may be lacking that kind of information of when somebody writes something on a journal, but they cannot have it all. The idea is to give the power back to the patient, not to continue, you know, relying on me or relying on our programs or just after a while, after two or three years, you know, that's why we also have a platform of many, 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 many behaviors. Because if you have an addiction on alcohol, then you're going to work on it. And then probably you're going to start compensating 
differently because you still need to fill that kind of void that you have been working on with the alcohol. But then if you are needing sleep or if you're needing smoking or if you're needing some mental health, then you can jump over from one program to the other one and continue working on yourself. This is also a truth, right? The only work that we do forever is on ourselves. So you had mentioned that MindCo has been around for about six years, correct? Yes. How has MindCo's offerings changed as it has evolved? And what has sparked those changes? Well, we started with a prototype for smoking cessation. We then iterated it a couple of times. We run clinical trials with it. Then we learn a lot. Then we iterated it again. And then we started working with companies, our customers, our, our employers that distribute this through the employee benefits departments. And that made us kind of understand better different kind of needs once we understood what the end user needed. And then we changed after COVID, uh, realized that there was a huge need for mental health. So we expanded our focus to non-communicable diseases which are the biggest drivers for health-related costs for insurance companies, for example. So right now we are working on the underlying behaviors causing all non-communicable diseases. And that's how we are kind of shaping our programs and our focus on what's happening in the market and the needs as well. Because we know today there is the biggest, biggest need for mental health ever in the world. So... Companies like ours are able to distribute it globally. Today, we operate in 14 different countries. And aside from the method of delivery, how does your program differ from other addiction treatments that are on the market? And how is it effective in terms of lessening cravings and improving motivation to actually make a change? I will get back to the cognitive ecology concept. When we think of the standalone interventions, um, you know, chatbots for stress management, anxiety, when you think about wellness coaches, when you think about meditation apps, those are amazing. They really work and it's really good. But again, getting back into the topic of this podcast, we work with VR. And VR is the perfect empathy machine. There is no other way to create context-based learning without VR. There, there is not. If you're a psychiatrist and you have somebody that is afraid of flight, you can, you know, work it a lot in the office, but then you have to get that person to the flight with you. VR gets that trouble out of the side and allows you to get that person into contextual situations that you can train them there. So when we differentiate from other companies working on addictions is because we offer social training context. This is kind of, we call it biopsychosocial training because we approach different aspects of the same problem from different dimensions of engagement. And you know, cravings are gonna be always there. You cannot eliminate them. Cravings exist and will continue to exist and that's how our physiology as human beings is made. So how we you know, keep tab of the cravings, keep them on the awareness side of things and we learn to choose, that's what VR is for. You know, you, also science and Kim here, you can work it out with me as well, but there has studies showing that imagery like a picture or a 2D video or a VR context is going to give you more level of presence by being in the situation. So VR is literally a technology made for that. And that's why we are different. And all other companies working in VR, they cannot be, again, scalable as we are 
they work on a different level of access. And that's why I always like to say, I don't know how to surf, right? But I would love to surf. So I see on the ocean, people surfing, you know, very nice, amazing. So I would love to be there. So maybe I get, you know, this smaller surfboard and I go and just be in the ocean. So most people, they don't have access to VR. They cannot surf in VR, right? But most people have a phone. So why don't we get them closer to the tool, you know, using the phone, leveraging the phone? And why we have to wait until everybody has access five more years and, and the like, why not do it now? The, the, the need is now. I really like that message about how the need is now. I just want to ask you, Emilio, where do you see extended reality in a few years from now? And, and what do you think is a challenge that needs to be solved to get there? What is your vision? Yeah, as a somatic psychology, I'm a somatic psychologist. My clinical work is with the body. And I, I, I'm a truly believer that any kind of change starts in the body. There is no cognitive thing that can, you know, bring over the body. So for me, the extended reality and everything related to this kind of XR is going to take a turning point when we can sync the body sensations with our avatars. That's where everything's going to change for me, for the good and for the bad. Uh, I think it's going to bring lots of trouble for many people because we're going to start working and hearing a lot of de-identification process, you know, uh, and that's going to bring a lot of trouble, but it's going to be bringing also a lot of opportunity because, uh, you know, we all are losing touch with our bodies. We are very mind people. So in that sense, I think extended reality has the opportunity to bring us back to the body. Not yet. I guess that it's going to be five to 10 years tops, but it's something that I'm looking forward to. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, anything else that you want to share with our listeners today? I mean, I would love, I could talk another two hours to you, but we've got a time limit here, but anything you want to discuss or, or bring up that we haven't? Yeah, I think one thing, Kim, is what you asked me before and I didn't answer is how we're working with clinicians. Mm-hmm. We are also in the discovery aspect of working with clinicians. So clinicians are suggesting to their clients to work with us like as a complementary uh, tool in, in between sessions. One of the things that we have been working and, and discovering also throughout this process is that some people, when they try to address an addiction or any kind of problem that is the main, the manifest work of the, of, of the work at the clinic, mm-hmm. they're usually not ready to actually address that directly. So one of the things that we have been working with clinicians is starting with the stress management program. And that's kind of, you know, working on the contemplation scale there. So we have been seeing that to be very successful. So whoever is in the audience, also a clinician that is looking forward into bringing on this into their practice, very much open to discuss. We have this kind of handouts. This is all subscription model for the patient. So it's closer to a value-based model than any other thing. There are no risks here. So it's something that could be a nice step if you want to start working with the field as well. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think the more um, flexibility you can give clinicians to experiment, to integrate into their practice, they'll start to get some ideas and give you feedback and also start to accept and adopt these interventions too. So great. Anything else? I'm very happy to be here and I'm very grateful also. This is a very nice opportunity to share also with 
you that you you are like the expert in the field. So it's for me an honor to be here. Well, I'm just a listener to all these things going on and organizing all these conversations. I feel like it's one big network of conversations actually that create the expertise. So, well, thank you so much, Amelia. This is such a great conversation and I, I have a feeling we need to have you back to continue it. So that's it for Psychiatry XR. And we hope you gained a new perspective on the use of extended reality in healthcare. And thank you so much for listening. This episode was brought to you by Psychiatry XR, the psychiatry podcast about immersive technology and mental health. For more information about Psychiatry XR, visit our website at psychiatryxr.com and be sure to subscribe to the podcast and tune in again next month to hear from another guest about XR and its use in psychiatric care. You can join us monthly on our Apple podcast, Twitter, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Psychiatry XR was produced by Dr. Kim Bullock, Faiza Arshad, and Jessica Hagen. Please note the podcast is distinct from my own clinical teaching and research roles at Stanford University, and the information provided is not medical advice and should not be considered or taken as a replacement for medical advice. This episode was edited by David Bell, and music and audio was produced by Austin Hagen. See you next time.